The title sponsor of Hunt Talk Radio is Leupold. Leupold Optics are the trusted optics of accomplished hunters and shooters. If it has a gold ring on it, you know it was built by American hands in Beaverton, Oregon. Whether it's a new rifle scope, binocular, a spotter, rangefinder, or eyewear, go to leupold.com to learn more and look for these fine Leupold products at your high-quality retailers. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. Hope you're all doing well. Today is another podcast with my great friend Andrew McKeon. This is our fourth of four uh, about this issue of how things are changing, how state agencies are being taken over by people with a different mindset, people who do not want hunting, who do not view our activities and, and the things we do as the path forward. We started this series with an, uh, a podcast with just Andrew and I. Uh, then we brought in uh, Kim Thornburn, Thorburn, uh, a former commissioner with uh, the Washington Wildlife Commission. And then we brought in Tony Wasley, former director of Nevada Department of Wildlife. And today, Andrew and I are going to summarize kind of what we've learned in this process, what we think the takeaways are, where we think there are some opportunities, and hopefully give you some ideas of where you can take action or just things you can do, whether it's in your daily life or something that is a, a deliberate uh, action that you're taking. Uh, probably the one thing that we have learned from all of this is that inaction is not going to solve our problem. That what we have, what has been built, what we enjoy is at risk maybe more than we want to admit, but the opportunity to keep that going forward, to lead it in a direction that is very, very bright for a future, that opportunity exists. We will find this path, and it's already happening. Uh, We're going to talk about how the response among many in our community in Washington and in Colorado has been impressive. And you haven't seen it all. I mean, there's a lot of it going on right now that's about to be launched, and you're going to see it over the next six to 18 months. But there are a lot of people who have caught on to this same wave of, of, I guess you'd call it, paradigm shift that Andrew and I are concerned about. A lot of people in our world And a lot of folks are lending their platforms, are jumping in. And you're going to start hearing a lot of messaging around this. You're going to start hearing strategic plans, communication about how we are going to tell our story, how we're going to move this forward, and how we're not going to let this be hijacked or taken away. So in this podcast, Andrew and I have kind of summarized our notes. And I hope we leave you with some optimism 
I hope we leave you with a dose of reality about what really is at stake and how concerned we should be. But hopefully we also leave you with some things that you can do. Because there's a lot of things every one of us can do. Some of us can do more. Some of us can only do so much because of our time constraints or whatever it might be. But if everybody does, everybody does some, not a chance that this and us, the, the, this idea we've always had, there's not a chance that it will be defeated. We will prevail. Our, our, our concerns will, will be addressed. We'll go forward with, I, I think, some lessons learned. But the thing that we love, the outdoors, wildlife, wild places, wild things, hunting, food, conservation, those things are going to have a bright future because we're going to pick it up and we're going to carry the ball across the goal line. So anyhow, appreciate y'all being here. I'm pretty excited to to wrap this one up with Andrew. Uh, we've had a couple of weeks to be comparing notes and doing everything else. And uh, I hope when you hear these, I hope you'll share them with people who might benefit from them. Uh, and I hope you'll, you'll give it some time and think about what you can do and uh, what maybe sphere of influence you have where you can make a difference or make a bigger difference than you already are. And for every one of you who are out doing that, I appreciate every one of you. I know it's not easy. I always say conservation has three main components. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable because someone's going to be upset with you and it's always inconvenient. Those three principles have always been there in my 35 years of doing this. And I appreciate every one of you who persevere through that and you do it because of your love for the wild places and wild things. So here we go, folks. Hope you get something good out of this. Andrew McKean, how is life in Glasgow, Montana today? Randy Newberg, I believe I can see the North Country from here. It is. I'll tell you what, the gates the gates to the Northland opened, and we got 10 inches of snow overnight. The fr- I mean, the first snow. I was hunting pheasants in my shirt sleeve on Sunday. Wow. Now, two days later, uh, we're headed to 10 degrees tonight and two below on Friday or Saturday. So ah. I guess I don't live here for the palm trees in the Riviera. Bring it on. Well... Uh, we only got four or five inches out at my house this morning, and I'm sure you would trade Glasgow for Bozeman on a snowy, icy morning where you, people don't even have to self-identify that this is their first winter here because there's so many people moving here. From my house to town, there were four cars in the ditch. Oh. It, it's like, okay, this person obviously just moved here. This person is it, like... <laughs> okay folks uh guess you got to learn your own lesson right physics and all that other stuff evidently didn't apply to them it, it's glare ice by the time seven o'clock comes and it's packed down and there are people passing me going 70 miles an hour in a rear wheel drive pickup i'm like all right you'll be down in the rhubarb <laughs> through the ditch and uh <laughs> through the fence and out out in the pasture at that rate but so well, either that or they're native from Dillon and just used to driving that way. In <laughs> <County>. <laughs>
<laughs> Maybe, but anyhow, I, if you're in the tow truck business here in Bozeman, these winter storms are really good for those those newcomers who are showing up here. But uh, anyhow, thanks for taking the time. It's hunting season. It is hunting season, but uh, I think you and I have this in common that this one, this sort of supersedes kind of getting out in the field. Although selfishly I'm looking outside. This is my very, very favorite time to be after pheasants. They're tucked into that thermal cover. They're shocked as I am. And (laughs) there's something about that gaudy plumage against white snow. And, oh, it's so pretty. So if we get done a little early, I'm sneaking out. All right. If not tomorrow morning, you got it. Yeah. Well, I I do th- echo your point that this is a higher priority than probably anything I feel I've been trying to work on in the last few years is I think the term you've used is this is the issue of our day. And folks who've been listening to these last three podcasts, you and I in episode one kind of talked about what we saw as the problem. And then we brought in some people who really had the the hands-on experience the you know the uh, lived it breathed it and we're on the blunt end of the hammer uh that being kim from uh washington uh fishing game commission uh wildlife commission and then tony who was the director in nevada and i i I kind of wrote a note i said you know kim told us what's really happening and how it how she saw it unfold right there as she was there. And then Tony kind of told us why this maybe isn't as unexpected as some people see it and how we're at a crossroads of our relevancy. And we can't take it for granted that that relevancy is guaranteed in this situation. And now it's up to you and I to take all of these loose ends, time in a nice little bow and give people more to think about and give them hope. Give them things to do, calls to action, right. ideas of why we think we're, we're going to prevail. And some tools. I think yeah. this is going to take uh, a toolkit unlike any that we have built and put together and, and utilized in our experience. Yeah, It's going to take communication skills. It's going to take some tolerance. I think it's going to take some patience. Mm-hmm. None of those things are, we really are kind of part of our, <laughs> our collective personalities. Yeah. So I'm actually excited to talk about that. Like what, what is the, what's the product of this four part series and what can people take away from it that is actionable? Cause we've got yeah. a lot to do. Yeah, it's, that's probably, for me, I, I've written down notes of what did I really learn in this process? Because you and I did, not full-time, but over 10 months, you and I were prepping for this. And I I was keeping notes along the way, and I went through those notes to say, okay, what of our work in this, what really catches me and surprises me? Uh, and there's a lot of things, and we'll touch on them, but probably seeing how much a lot of people care was very fulfilling very there there's there are so many people out there listening who are affected by this that care as much as you and I do 
and to see them say, I'm here, I, I'm ready. I tell tell me what. And some of them saying, I don't know what, but I'm going to try. I'm, I'm trying this. I'm trying that. And, and me and my friends were getting together. And so seeing this, uh, I, I don't know if you want to call it this rising uh, flow of enthusiasm and determination among the, the community that we live in and breathe in has really been I don't know if it should have been surprising, but I'll say it, it's been surprising and has put a smile on my face to see. I, this can be so abstract, just sort of out there nebulous, you know, it's a, oh, it's, it doesn't affect my daily yeah. life. Somebody else will take care of this. All of those sort of like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Those, those, uh, I guess, means we have of pushing away bad news or things we don't mm-hmm. fully understand. I have not really felt it this way. I think people definitely sense that this is immediate and worrisome. And and yeah. so I, I'm excited about it. I think what you and I have seen already, I mean, just look in the last week of some of the conversations we've been a part of, yep. really independent of each other, but what's common to them is the stuff that you and I have been talking about. And I think what we've devoted this, this little mini series to. So yeah. no, it, it matters. And I, I, uh, I hope it creates a little dialogue that far outlasts what you and I have talked about. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. And you know, it, almost as if they wanted to throw us a plum that we didn't even have on our radar is ballot initiative. You know, we didn't really even get into that, but over the course of us doing these prior three episodes, along comes a proposal in Colorado that really will have a ballot initiative related to, they might want to say it's the hunting of felines, mountain lions, bobcat, and lynx, which are protected species. Uh, the way it's being worded could, could go far beyond that. And uh, so it's almost like, uh, we, there's a, a new issue on this every month or every couple of weeks that we could probably do 10 more episodes and they're just throwing us fresh content. <laughs> Which, I don't want any more fresh content. I want to get things in place. I, I want to see the hunting community and its organizations and its people and its institutions rally to this and change the direction that you know, we're, we're kind of been the easy dog to kick. And sometimes we've made ourselves the easy dog to kick. But I want to see that that process start to change. And I'm I'm thinking that we're, we're going to see it. Well, so already, and a couple of things I know are on your radar. Uh, since we've been talking about Washington, which is sort of the Petri dish where a lot of this is happening, mm-hmm. we've seen a pretty vigorous response, uh, yep. organized uh Great communications plan and strategic plan of action. The Colorado issue, you know, the Colorado ballot initiative is extremely easy to subvert or to participate in, depending on how you want to look at it. And mm-hmm. the, our opponents know that. And so it's very deliberate. Uh, if they can get a win of the magnitude that I think they imagine they can do in Colorado, which is, as you alluded to, this is not just wild felines. This is a, a ban on trophy hunting, yep. as they call it which could is so overly broad, it could affect every bit of hunting and even fly fishing, catch, catch and keep, or even catch and release. Fly yeah. fi- I mean, it is, it's crazy the ambition that they have, but it's real and it's deliberate. 
Hey, folks, we're in the middle of application season, and you know what I use for applications, right? For draw odds, for filtering, for strategy articles. It's the big sponsor of this platform, GoHunt. If you want to have that tool available to you before application season ends, go out there now, sign up, use promo code Randy. And when you do, they're going to put $50 of credit in your gear shop account. And mostly, you're going to have the information you need to draw that tag and go hunting this year. GoHunt.com, promo code Randy. Nosler Ammunition is the official ammunition of Hunt Talk Radio and every other platform that we produce. Nosler was founded in 1948 by John Nosler. And over that time, Nosler Ammunition has proven time and again why so many hunters and shooters trust Nosler. Whether it's Nosler bullets, components, or their premium grade ammunition, Nosler's reputation at quality shines through. We shoot exclusively Nosler E-tips, Acubons, and partitions in all of our rifles. And all of those can be found at Nosler.com or look for them at fine retailers near you. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. For years, I've been using Mystery Ranch Packs. It might be the Metcalf or the Beartooth, the Sawtooth or the Pintler. No matter which Mystery Ranch pack you choose, here's how you can save 10% on your purchase. Go to the Go Hunt gear shop, gohunt.com, put a Mystery Ranch pack in your cart, and when you check out using promo code RANDY, you're going to save 10% off that pack and most of the other regular priced items in your cart. Mr. Ranch backpacks, can't beat them. Go check them out. I think one of the yeah. things that we saw is a, awakening, an awakening from each of the individual organizations, whether it's the ducks or the turkeys or the mule deer or the elk, these species-specific groups saying, wait a minute, We've got actually a much bigger mission that's that is exceeds our our, our narrow mission for species conservation yeah. to maybe human hunters are the species in greatest need of conservation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do worry uh that in our, you know, the hunters as uh, if I compare my generation to my dad's generation, they were all generalists, right? Ah, I'm a hunter. Well, we're not just a hunter. We might be an elk hunter. And among elk hunters, I'm an archery elk hunter. I'm a public land self-guided archery elk hunter. I mean, we start getting ourselves into such specialist categories that we're, we're in what I've talked about is each of our little stringers or our, our, where we take our, are, are kind of like a limb on a tree. And we've grown all these limbs on this tree, but we're not taking care of the trunk of the tree in all of our specialism whereas our parents generation they said ah we're going to grow this tree and it's going to be strong and we're going to you know we're just hunters you know we're not muzzleloader hunters or we're not crossbow hunters or we're not archery hunters or shotgun we're just hunters and they protected and advocated for hunting and i'm not saying that as a criticism against the specialists and the in the groups that represent all these things I'm just pointing it out as an observation and asking the question, who's going to fill the role to keep the tree growing? The limbs are going to die if the trunk of the tree is not preserved. Man, I want to, uh, I want to, I want to steal that. And the greatest honor is imitation, but that is exactly the right analogy. 
Yeah. I, and I, I see it. And, yeah. you know, you could probably see the same thing in the fishing world, right? My daddy fished, you know. Well, now we got bait fishermen. We got topwater fishermen. We got even among the fly fishermen. Well, I nymph, I dry fly, I, I spay cast. I, it's like, again, we get ourselves out in these specialties, and that's great. It, it's where our passion and interests take us. But let's not lose track of where the limbs of the tree, the branches come from. Where do those branches and those leaves get their energy get everything they need to survive it's the trunk of that tree and i think these other groups probably have looked at us and said have you ever seen such a fractured group of people in your life yeah and it expresses itself when we go to our meetings right you you go to a fishing game meeting and you got the crossbow guys fighting with the traditional archery guys you got the hound hunters fighting with the mule deer hunters the you know it's like Folks, I get it, but right now we got a way bigger front that we got to face here. And hopefully part of what we're doing here and seeing how the groups are responding to this, I think the the tree, the trunk of the tree is going to start getting a little more water and fertilizer. Well, what we're fighting against is the very un- exciting cold <laughs> clinical gummy boring topic of governance yeah that's really at the core of so many of these discussions and yep. I, i'm hopeful that we can figure it out but you know randy and i are are uh, recording this the first or i guess the last week of october the news and of course across my transom today was the house representatives after three weeks, finally has a speaker of the house. So we don't do a very good job of governance, even at that level. And so I am hopeful that we can be clear-eyed about what our job is in our community, but governance is messy and it is uh, increasingly with all of our polarization and our algorithms that just create these echo chambers, we haven't done a very good job of coming together over these issues. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the first thing that we need to tackle that may be out of our purview and our ability to influence but i think we have to be aware of it no i i i think you're right we we have to you know governance is a great theory but in order for it to be in practicality you need good people you need people who are beholden to their in the case of commissions and other places their trustee duties and you can't have it tainted with the political process you know Fortunately, we were one of the last bastions of uh, agnostic political influence. But even our our little corner of the world has since, in the last 10 to 15 years, they've said, well, let's air up this political football and let's kick this around a little bit. (laughs) You know? So, and here's the challenge among us. When it's in our favor, the temptation... The siren song to go and play that political game when it's in our favor is almost irresistible. But as sure as you and I are sitting here in the boundaries of Montana today, in the future, someone else is going to grab that political football and cram it down your throat. Yeah. So the point of that being governance is not politics. So 
I know listeners are saying, okay, enough of the abstractions. Give us some, give us, some, <laughs> yeah. give us some, give us a bone with some meat on it. Well, here okay. is one that I think is really a hopeful sign. So yep. we, we're just talking about Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, and we've mentioned in previous episodes the I would call the the great hoodwinking of the hunters and anglers of Colorado has been the appointment of commissioners who have absolutely nothing to do in terms of experience with hunting and fishing. And in fact, they're on the record as being an anathema to it, Mm -hmm. against it. Uh, That is an exercise of political uh, opportunity Mm -hmm. from the party in power. What I'm hopeful about is since we've been talking, there has been a lot of energy, and I actually think it's been codified now, to require Colorado Fish and Game Commissioners to meet twice a year with the constituency that they represent. Now, yeah. some commissioners there are representing stock growers or the ag community. Others are representing kind of the rank-and-file sportsmen and sportswomen in Colorado. But that is an example of a very granular, I think, very healthy requirement for somebody who is in a representative position to actually meet with the people you represent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to see that pursued in every single every, state. Yeah. No, I, I think this, changes like that are the things that we're going to have to do to get back to governance that works. And whether it's governance that... <laughs> every time, I, I say this, I chuckle a little bit because I'm like, well, governance change sometimes requires legislative action. And do you really want those people involved? Because... You you know, you put something in the sausage grinder, you don't know what's coming out the other end. And so, but as people, as citizens, as vested parties, as beneficiaries of the public trust that is this wildlife, we need to start taking actions like that. We need to hold trustees accountable. We need to ask the question, you know, what what is your, tell us why you're doing this. And if it's not satisfactory, how do we implement those types of, of changes? to require people to operate as a trustee should operate. Here's the second thing I would throw out. I, this was this came to me this week. I would, can't remember the story I was working on, but I, I had reason to go look at New Mexico's big game proclamation, you know, mm-hmm. the, the regulations for deer, elk, yep. barbary sheep, um, everything that goes on uh, from the regulatory standpoint in New Mexico and the, you know, the tradition of these documents, these publications is you've got that letter from the director. Yep. There's nothing surprising in it. It is, you know, let's celebrate the bounty of our state and our great traditions. Great. Yep. I think I may have written a few of those for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks when I worked here. <laughs> but it was so refreshing to see New Mexico's proclamation was a picture of a citizen standing at a podium in front of their commission. And the director said in the letter, he said, normally it would be a picture of me, a portrait in my office with the flag behind me. He said, but I wanted to put a picture in the proclamation of the things that really matter. And it's the public that this document, this proclamation is a product of public participation. Man, I about almost broke into a cheer reading that because it's exactly right. And I think we forget about it. The other side of governance is participation. Every one of these decisions has been made in a public process that we didn't show up to or we were not unified or we didn't know what we wanted. 
And I think that's got to be one of the bigger wrenches in our toolbox is we have the ability to influence the process if we only avail ourselves of it. Yeah. As, As you said in the outline that we have been using for this, apathy is a decision. That's right. In other words, saying you're too busy or saying, ah, I don't really want to go there today, or, well, they should read my mind. They should, they, they should read my Facebook page. They know how I feel about this. No. You have to show up and engage. You know, this, uh, the old NFL coach is, you know, we are who, we, who they thought we, they, they were who we thought we, they were. And we got our clock clean. Because we showed up unprepared. Well, in our case, it's because we just, a lot of times we just didn't show up. Yeah. So uh, I think showing up, and, and you and I have have preached this for, for a long time to a lot of people, but hopefully uh, the examples we're seeing where the tide is turning a bit in places like Washington, uh, people are seeing the value of showing up. And, you know, uh, our buddy Jim Pozowitz used to say, if you have an opposition, don't let them just take it. Make them take it from you with the fight of everything you have. You know, if, if you just say, well, this sounds a foregone conclusion, guess what? You're right. Yeah. You know, so be there. Governance and public involvement requires the public to be involved. I know that might be a disconnect to use the term public involvement and include the noun and the, uh, you're the writer, the noun and the verb. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an accountant. I'd about ready to throw something out there. But anyhow, they, that, uh, that sounds like ninth grade civics. I know, folks. And you've heard it on this podcast a million times. But if we don't show up, we're going to get cleaned. I think we also have to know the rules and expect everybody to play by them. So yeah. I look at what happened in Washington state where we had mm-hmm. gubernatorial appointments that were right. never confirmed right. by the legislative body right. that allowed this, this sort of takeover to occur without a check or a balance. Yep. We can blame ourselves for that. We did not as a community demand that that happen. Yep. Um, yep. And so I think we, we got to be, we have to learn the rules and then we have to assure that they are applied at every turn. Yeah. And I, I think the, the, one of my football coaches used to say, you can't demi- demand accountability of others if you aren't accountable to yourself. And I think we as the hunting community, if we don't hold ourselves accountable, it's, it gets hard to expect others to be held accountable. And point point I'm making in that is we need to be accountable, like you said, to, okay, here's the rules, here's guidelines. We're not going to violate these. We're not going to skip over any of these. We're not going to slant that, you know, in some special favoritism. And when it happens, we're going to stand up and talk about it. We're going to, we're going to call it out. Yep. But if, if there's times, and there are times where we've maybe not been as forthright as, uh, you know, as a community or some of the people who represent us, maybe weren't holding themselves to standards, all of a sudden, uh, you know, along comes the other side, does the same thing. It's like, boy, dang, can we really hold them accountable? We have to hold them accountable. Well, you look at, at the real... Um, at the real audience that's watching that aren't necessarily the people in the trenches. 
-hmm. It's those people in the middle who are converts to one direction or the other. And in a lot of cases, if they don't understand the nuances or the details of the argument, Mm -hmm. what they do understand is, hey, that person didn't follow procedure, rules and procedure. Right. And you don't have to understand the issue to say, well, I'm against that. If that guy's a cheater... That that's exactly right. And I, I think what what where that path you started down paints another thing that is really a challenge for this us in this effort. We if you want to use a simple math, some would say, okay, you got ten percent with our mind made up over here and ten percent with our mind made up over there. We're trying to argue with the eighty percent in the middle. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. You'll find courses by my buddy Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, me, Hank Shaw, John Barklow, Jamie Teagan, and the list is growing and growing. And here's the other cool part. My buddy Corey, who founded the University of Elk Hunting course, the popular course that is everything known about elk hunting, his course is now part of your subscription to Outdoor Class. So, all for one subscription, at one price, you get all of the Outdoor Class courses, plus Corey's University of Elk Hunting. Go to OutdoorClass.com, use promo code RANDY when you sign up, and you're going to save 20%. This will be great information for any hunter. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class, an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. Outdoor Class now includes the University of Elk Hunting course from my buddy Corey Jacobson. All these courses in one single subscription at one price. Go to OutdoorClass.com and use promo code RANDY to save 20% when you sign up. This is great information for any hunter at any level. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is also presented by our wonderful friends at Mountain Tough. If you're like me and you want to hunt until you're 80, or maybe you just want to keep up with the younger folks or your kids later in life, you need to start focusing on your health and your nutrition. It's never too late to get started. I just started and I'm 59. And yeah, I should have started 20 years ago, but I've made that commitment and the Mountain Tough app makes it so easy. So if you want to invest in your health and your hunting, start your free trial today. Go to mountaintough.com and when you sign up for the free trial, they're going to give you 14 days free. But when you sign up and use promo code RANDY, they're going to add an extra 30 days onto that free trial when you select the monthly plan. Well, the 80% in the middle responds to a different message and a different messenger than the 10% who hunt and fish or the 10% who are, you know, extreme in this animal rights, religious faith, belief, whatever you want to call it. So to be effective... You can't send the old gray-haired white dude in his flannels to try convince the soccer mom that I should be able to shoot this bear, Baba, or this whatever. That that just isn't gonna move the needle. And we we got to be strategic in that. We got to figure out 
how do people who think differently than us, talk differently than us, but are concerned about wildlife, are concerned about the long-term future of sustainability of our wildlife, they share so many things with us. How do we reach them? How do we sway them? Sending me to be that messenger, I, I could have the best message in the world, but I am not the person they, they're going to respond to. So that's, that's one of the challenges we face. Yeah. But with strategy and communications, and you and I have had the benefit of talking to some of those people, there's a lot of thought out there about how you can do that. You and I have talked a little bit in the context of this mini-series, but even outside of it, about one of the big challenges of not only our community, this goes cuts, cuts across the grain. Increasingly, we don't talk to people we don't know or don't have affinities with. And, yeah. and that's what, honestly, that's what worries me most because um, it's easy to talk to people who are going to agree. It's, as our friend Gaspar Paracone said, it's easy to push on an open door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's, it a lot, it's a lot harder to meet resistance and have to think about your message as well as the messenger, because we don't do a very good job of talking across uh, these silos. And, and, and increasingly, uh, thanks to social media, we don't do it at all. And, and, and that's where I think we've got to really break it down almost at the neighbor and neighborhood level. Yep. Um, where, it, yes, it's what we say, but it's also who we are and how we carry ourselves that yeah. people recognize and and either appreciate or uh, disdain. You know, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of mutual sort of middle ground there, no. uh, especially when it comes to something that we do that's as absolute as taking the life of a of a public wild creature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. To, to that point, Andrew, this is the point I've made many times is everybody who hunts is a, an ambassador yeah. of hunting. Yeah. You're an ambassador of this culture, of this way of life, and of this institution of going out and acquiring your own food, the sustainability, the self-reliance, all, all these things. So I don't care who you are, where you live. You are an ambassador to that. And it only takes one bad person to turn, or one bad attitude, one negative encounter to turn 10 people against us. But it takes an awful awful lot of positive work to turn 10 people towards us. So, you know, the first thing, uh, you know, in the medical world, they say, whatever you do to the patient, do no further harm. Right? We're trying to save this patient. We're trying to get them healthy again. Do no further harm. So when it comes to this do no further harm perspective, you know, one of the things that I think, I, I know I've heard this in Washington from the effort that's mobilizing around countering what's happening there, is message discipline. Yes. Is ensuring that we are talking about these issues in a relatable but fairly similar way so that we don't have a lot of, you know, our community can be a little bit earthy 
<laughs> shall we say, sometimes. <laughs> you know, and it, 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 and it maybe yeah. is not quite as uh, apparent as the whack-em and stack-em or the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the real sort of wincing yeah. way that we describe how we are conquering wild lands and wild places and wild things. But yeah. I do think we need to do a better job. And I think that's what I'm really seeing with sort of the superstructure around the response to all this of like, okay, here are messages that we've, we know work from polling and political campaigns. Let's use variations on those and let's stay away from that super, maybe emotional or, uh, well, you wouldn't understand unless you're doing it sort of perspective that there are actual ways that we can use our communication tools to, to reach people wherever they are, not where we are. Yeah, no, and that's uh, probably the point where I was trying to get to there. It would be way better to spend money to have a suburban soccer mom go and talk to this 80% than to have Randy Newberg do it for free. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's just a reality. And the what what... The, the soccer mom would be asked to say and how she would be asked to say it to try sway this 80% might not be harsh enough for some of our people to say, oh, boy, getting soft on that. Well, you can't call that harvest. We're killing stuff, you know? So I'm just here to tell you, folks, if we're going to win this war, if, if, if the battles are going to be won, it is not going to be one preaching to the choir using the same terms, the same people, the same everything else. Because if that worked, we wouldn't be in this situation. We've done that for 30 years. <laughs> so I, I think that's going to be one of the challenges in, in some of this communicating and, and messaging is we're going to get whoever's in charge of this stuff in whatever state it's unfolding, wherever it's happening, they're going to talk to some strategic communicators and they're going to say, well, here's what you need. You need this type of messenger with this type of message. This is what's going to move the needle. That opens up the flank to some of the really harsh folks over on our side who just, nope, the world has to see the world, the seed life the way I see it. And that's not going to get us there. The hopeful thing about that is I think there has been a segment of our community and I, I, I'm not going to be, it's one, you know, them when you see them, it's somebody who is maybe younger, who maybe looks a little different from the rest of the old guard, but mm-hmm. who has this ability to communicate with people we could never talk to. Yeah. What, what's exciting about this is I think we need to now give them not only the opportunity, but the power and the authority to speak on our behalf. Yeah. Because I feel Absolutely. like they've probably been sort of self-censored or suppressed by feeling like this is just a closed loop that they don't really yep. aren't that welcome in. Well, I'm here to tell you, they're welcome. Yep. <laughs> part, uh, part of my experience is I'm fresh off the high school cross-country season. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, it's just cool to be with kids yeah. and listen to ways that they communicate with each other that, I mean, there's... 
terminology and lingo and actual <laughs> words and ways you like hold your body when you say those words. <laughs> it's like a foreign language to me, but they're picking it up immediately. And there's nothing that will make you feel as old than as riding a cr- <laughs> cruiser for eight hours across the state and listening to conversations that you can't really understand. <laughs> so I think we do need to empower people in our community to to go out and share this message because that's how we're going to grow our world and our, and our message. Not by. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that this might sound like a homework assignment, but I hope that people who listen to this will either on their own, go and research this stuff or they'll go listen to some of the podcasts I've done on it or others have done on it. But every one of you listening are a beneficiary of the public trust. That is a unique, it's an American birthright. It is a, a benefit that you should not take for granted. It is something that is very, very valuable to each of us as individuals. And you should understand how that works. You should understand what trustees are. You should understand what trustee duties are. So that when you're engaging in this, you understand where this accountability lies, you understand to whom the accountability is uh, is uh, to be provided for, and that there are protocols and mechanisms. Because something that is very powerful in this is if you understand this stuff, an informed person, an informed advocate scares a trustee. Someone who just shows up, rants and raves, uninformed, the trustees like this person has no clue. So for each of us and all of us, if we're dealing with a North American model of which one of the seven sisters or the seven tenants is a, a public trust resource, I would ask you to at least understand the basics of how the public trust doctrine works and where you fit within that and those who you're communicating with, whether they're trustees, whether they're stakeholders, understand where they fit in it also. Because it, there, we, we, have, we have some work to, to do there, I think. Mm-hmm. If, if more of our community understood that doctrine and understood even the basic mechanisms of it, I think they'd feel more empowered to, to do what we're talking, get engaged, to speak up to organize but right now it, they just don't they don't feel that it's going to make a difference but if you understand how the public trust doctrine work and how trustee beneficiary relationships work you quickly realize that you have power you can hold people's feet to the fire and we should my great wish hearing off of that is that we once we understand our role within that expectation, we look at the downstream benefits of what that relationship and that mechanism does. I feel strongly that this is what's going to um, resonate with people who don't have a cultural history of hunting or fishing, may not have any interest in hunting or fishing, but recognize that hunters and anglers and our wildlife agencies are directly responsible for clean water and for yep. open spaces, and for healthy human communities. Yep. I, I, those, and to, to, to reiterate that those are not accidents of geography, that these no. are 
direct outcomes of healthy ecosystems that are managed through scientific wildlife management. Yeah. And to connect all of those dots. Yep. And, uh, you know, the, it, as an individual, you can, you can make that case. You, you, you might say, well, I only have like five people I talk to in my life. I'm, I'm a little bit of an introvert. Oh, well, that's five people who over time, if they come to understand that wild place that they like to go hike in or this clean water they like to you know, fish in or kayak or whatever, those are things that make a difference. And, and I know people are like, Randy, this is just so Pollyannish. This is... <laughs> I, I'm here to tell you there is no silver bullet. If you think that me or Andrew or any of us in, who spent immense amounts of time in this had a silver bullet, we would have used it by now. Yeah. This is uh, all hands on deck. This is everybody's got to have their shoulders to the wheel in the same direction. We can't be punching holes in our own boat. And every person is going to make a difference. And whether you want to lead from the front of the parade or the back of the parade, it doesn't matter. Just get in the parade and start marching towards the goal and doing something. And that's, uh, I, I, I just worry that people are like, all right, Randy, I get it. I get it. Because most of this audience on this podcast are pretty active advocates. Yeah. Uh, but I hope they'll think about, okay, who within my sphere could I maybe encourage to be a little more active, to advocate a little more? Who is this influential person that I know they haunt, but you know they're a county commissioner, they're this or that, but they never really lean in on our issues. Now's the time. If you can call in those favors, if you know somebody, if, if you are in one of those positions, we're asking you, speak up. Here's another tool. This is maybe I guess you'd look at it. This is the this is the 11 millimeter uh, open ended wrench. <laughs> okay, because it's in every toolbox. But yeah. I think, and I, this is going to come off as being pretty Pollyannish, but I think it's an important thing to mention. We need to support professional wildlife management and the people yes. who do it. Yes. It's become very sporting in our community to throw bombs, hand grenades, rocks, yeah. addle addles, yep. spears, harpoons at biologists and our fish yep. and game agencies. Yep. And and it's rewarding as hell. I mean, geez, you get a rise out of people and you know, you get a little tittle out of our audience. Yeah. But I'm here to say that those people are feeling a lot of pressure right now. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and sometimes they will they'll make a mistake or they may be guided by, you know, maybe the science led them to a, a wrong conclusion. But what they're doing is really important part of this world. And yes. And 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 I'm not saying blind support for them, but listen to proposals, understand the rationale for decisions. And if it makes sense, support them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, the, there's when, you, when you're in sixth grade, right, you're out on the playground and it's like, if everyone's picking on this person or one person is the one that gets picked on, it's like everyone gangs up on them, right? And you kind of see that same behavior at some of these meetings. It's like one guy stands up and 
raises hell with somebody. And then everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they all, it's like piling on. And uh, that's not helpful. You know, that's not going to solve our issues. Right. You know, they, they, these people, they they probably have 99% in common on these issues as we do. Right. Most of them. So don't don't make them the enemy. Well, and it's it's unseemly and in some cases uh unauthorized for them to rebut some of these this nonsense. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of an interesting um just personality trait wildlife biologists in general. Do you know the definition of an extroverted biologist? Mm, a unicorn? <laughs> <laughs> no, she looks at your shoes instead of her own. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I, mean, no, I, I can I, respect I, that coming from the accounting profession. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in, in a lot of cases, they're more comfortable dealing with resources and, mm-hmm. and analytics, and, and they've been thrust into this very intense light of public scrutiny. And in a lot of cases, that's not their sort of natural habitat. Yeah. Um, and so it can seem like sort of that's the ganging on I see sometimes where you know, it can feel almost a little unfair. And I'm, and I'm not saying blindly agree with everything. By, by no means am I saying that. But this is, I guess, a corollary to the be involved part that we've already talked about is mm-hmm. be supportive of good policy. Yeah. No, it's, and you know, they've heard me say this earlier on this series and in prior podcasts, part of the job of our trustees to protect us from ourselves. No, just because you're the beneficiary doesn't mean you get your way all the time. So that's part of their job and it's thankless, but it's required. And, uh, don't, don't pitch a big fit, you know, throw your sucker in the dirt and, you know, threaten to whatever. It's, uh, yeah, point well taken. Uh, from our, our interview with Tony, uh, maybe we'll start with Kim. Um, what I took away from Kim is we can't deny that this is happening anymore. We, we can't deny that it's an abuse of process. In, like in Washington that she witnessed, uh, we have to hold our elected officials accountable. And I'm still, ever since the podcast with her, I'm having this quandary of how do you do that? How do you hold an elected trustee accountable other than the next election? But a lot of damage can be done before the next election. And this is where... It's hard to do because it's expensive. It's like, okay, who's going to do it? But this is more of a, a thought for some of our groups, and some of our better uh, legally minded uh, members. How do we do that? Do we have to litigate? The other side has zero hesitation about litigation. None. Do we have to get over that? Mm. Because these processes, when they are being abused in a, under American law, it's like, well, if you break the law, that's what the courts are for. Well, the courts require litigation. If you say, I'm just averse to litigation, I, I just don't, I, I'm not going to go there. The other side's like, <laughs> well, that, that's like a path of no resistance. Right. 
So I, I hate that. I, 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 I'm a firm believer of good people do the right thing. But when you have either bad people doing the wrong thing or just good people who don't know any better and they do the wrong thing, there has to be a corrective mechanism. And what I gathered from Kim is we're reaching that point where we can't just complain about it. We can activate, we can motivate, we can organize like they're doing in Washington to a superb degree. Those guys are really getting with it. But there may come a time where we have to litigate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's, let's not cross that off our options. Well, I want to go back to kind of some, the beginning of the process of picking good people. But I, I, before, before that, I think it's important to think about what you just said, because we are, we're a, a not very good in terms of our, personality. We don't instinctively move at that aggressive level of, um, of requesting stoppage. But I also look at the way we're organized as a community where, you know, from a, just a, a logistical standpoint, who funds that? Right. Right. How do we, how do we not only gin up the ire and anger and sort of, uh, gumption to do that, but then how do we actually do it? And this is what we talked about a little bit ago. We are very fractured and diffused. Mm-hmm. I can make the case that coming out of this, we really need for wildlife management, an organization, not unlike the NRA mm-hmm. for the second amendment defender and litigants. We don't really have that in the world. We've got, uh, U.S. Sportsman that does a good job of it. We've mm-hmm. got Safari Club International that does a good job of it. But they're putting out these brush fires a lot. And so a lot of times right. they're, they're very state-specific. They have fundraising campaigns around these very specific issues. But we don't have a war chest. No. We don't have an organization that's watching this before it becomes a problem. Yep, and that's why I, I say I'm, I'm somewhat speaking to the audience of our organizations and our people who play in that game. I think it's time that we have a, and, you know, some of these war chest groups that you build the war chest with, their donations are not tax deductible because of how they have to be formed in order to do this. So let's go form some of those groups and let's, let's get geared up because putting out brush fires is super helpful so that it doesn't turn into, you know, a crown fire up in the canopy. But we're going to be putting out more brush fires every year. Yeah. So how do we get somebody who can go and put some retardant on that? And <laughs> I, I, I'm with you. And I think a lot of people have been saying this for years that among our groups, among our community, we need somebody who's there protecting the trunk of the tree to use the analogy that I talked about earlier. And uh, that's that's one of the things I took from from the podcast with Kim is, you know, there, there are just blatant abuses and in the United States, the mechanism for that is the courts. We should have as many lawyers on staff as the other side does. And we should have better lawyers, you know, and in the business world, what you say is go and get on retainer, the best law firm in your state and operate in a way that you don't have to use them. 
But if you have to use them, you got them. So that's. So we're talking about response and reaction. I, yep. I think one of the other, maybe this is the ball peen hammer in our okay. kit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I don't know. Maybe the slip slip jaw pliers. I'm not sure, but it's one that I think has got to be used every day. And that is we're letting and allowing commissioners represent us as individuals in a community who have no business doing that. Right. And whether it is a political favor to a governor or a power broker, or whether it is someone who's gotten into such a, a, a special interest where mm-hmm. they either benefit or they benefit their cronies through that position, we cannot let that happen. No. And, it, and it happens on both sides. It is what yep. we're seeing in Washington is these are political favors to a very left-leaning um, in, a governor and administration, but we're seeing it elsewhere with people who we're seeing it in Montana where we've got people on the commission who don't represent that public trust responsibility or the resource. They represent a special interest that in some cases is, is anathema is, is, is a taker of that public trust. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's where, you know, anyone who thinks this is all on one side or the other, some of these symptoms we see no. We we need to we need to to demand better, and uh, I so I, I intend to do that. I have been. I think a lot of us have been doing that, and we're like, well, if if you've been working at that, why why haven't things changed? Well, nothing changes overnight. It requires a lot of work, uh, and you know it's a lot easier to burn the house down than it is to build the house back. Right. Uh, so. Uh, I, I look though at kind of a, this is just coming to me now. So I'm going to speak on my feet a little bit, but just, just in Montana alone, we actually have a farm team that if it's working right, is not a bad incubator for future commissioners. Every region has a citizen's advisory committee that right. works with fish, wildlife and parks and is kind of like a advisory group. They don't really have any, any real power. They don't vote on things. They don't, their approval is not required for anything. Mm-hmm. But these are people who typically, if it works right, should be conversant with the issues. They have a constituency that they sort of represent at this level, and they they work up through these ranks. I think we need to do a better job of looking at some of those people, at some of the people who have a, just a demonstrated history of actually giving a crap about the job of being a commissioner as prospective commissioners so that when a governor uh, comes into office, there are people who are not just being sort of plucked out of the Rolodex of big beneficiaries or big donors, <laughs> but people who've actually been thoughtful about this and have been kind of working toward this for much of their career. Yeah. And if your governor is just going to the Rolodex of, you know, big donors, let them know about it. You, you, if, if we just say, well, I voted for her, him or her, and I really don't want to ruffle any feathers, just because you vote for something doesn't mean you're beholden to every decision they make. If anything, they're going to listen to you more than they are the person who didn't vote for them. And that's part of our role. Well, you mentioned takeaways from Kim's conversation. This is actually one I, th- I, I plucked out of what Tony was talking about, and that is the you know, he talked a lot about relevancy um, and his work on creating a 
bigger conservation community. Yeah. And what I think is interesting about that is, you know, in some ways you could look at, at, at opening the door to these non-traditional participants as, as, as part of that. Oh man, it was, this is really dangerous. You know, if we open it up a little, look what happened in Washington. You know, we let the enemy in the door. I think what, I think what Tony was talking about was um, having the strength of our conviction that we're, we can't do this alone, but that we need to be working with groups of people who actually share the same ultimate goals, even though they might not share the license in their pocket and the rifle on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, they care about songbirds or they care about wildlands. They care about open spaces. And so I'd be curious to get your take on that too, because that's, that's kind of a fine line of do we mm-hmm. keep this as a closed unit, which has served us fairly well in the past, but mm-hmm. increasingly we're older and smaller and less relevant. Yeah. How do we open the doors to new communities and, um, and perspectives while still keeping the basis of what we do. Yeah. And listening to to Tony talk about that in the years and decades of research that he's put into it and that he really lived it. You know, he lived in a state that underwent a transformation demographically like very few other states. Uh, And so for them to stay relevant, they had to think this through. And some would argue whether Nevada has or hasn't done a good job with it. I think Nevada has been one of the leaders of realizing it and trying to remain relevant in a rapidly changing, urbanizing community. You ask my opinion about it. My opinion about it is anyone who cares for wildlife, who cares about wild places and wild things and productive landscape, I'm there with them on that issue. And we might disagree on, you know, certain other nuances of stuff, but if, unless you really see this data, and the data is what it is, differently than I do and differently than Tony does, if you think that not telling better stories, not telling stories that engage and inspire people who would maybe talk differently, maybe come from different backgrounds, have a different view of the world... If you think that we're just going to hold on to this and ride it until the horse, maybe some people that's what they're happy with, to your point. Let's just ride the horse till it dies and, you know, close the book and say, oh, the hell of a chapter. I'm not there. I'm saying, no, we need fresh ponies. Yeah. You know, this, this ride never ends. This ride goes generations and generations, 500 years from now. I, that's where my vision is in this. What, yeah. What's it going to be like in 500 years? And I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to accept that we can just circle our little group of people and fight it off until we just run, you know, through a siege, we run out of food and water. And then I say, well, I guess we're, we're going to go down swinging, but we're going down. We don't have to do that. To be relevant, we have to have a better story. Like Kim said, you guys have an amazing story. Go and tell it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for Tony's point, there are people out there that want to be part of this. 
that are interested in this, that share the same appreciation for the wild places and the wild things that historically we have. I am about bringing them in rather than saying, nope, you sit in the back of the room. We, we, we own all the seats up here at the table where the decisions are being made. One of the biggest surprises of Tony's remarks and conversation with us was looking at some of the most effective ways of telling that story. I've been, I've been working under an assumption that it turns out I think is wrong, that when we look back with fondness at what we do, right, we look mm-hmm. back at the nostalgia and the traditions and what I call our inheritance of a great American folk art, that that resonates. But Tony said that is not the case. The messages that resonate are forward-looking and future-looking, not show us what you have done, show us what you can do. And I think if I want to throw another tool out there, that that is a really important perspective, especially when we're trying to engage people who really don't care about our quaint nostalgia (laughs) and, and our sappy stories about the way things were. How will it look? How will we affect change in their lives and their children's lives and their children's 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 lives? And that's a story I don't think we've done a very good job Hmm. of telling. We've got a great track record. Now let's extrapolate that forward. You mentioned, I think, in an early episode, just if you need one piece of evidence of, of our larger success, look at wetland bird species, the only category of birds that are not in widespread decline globally. Because why? We have a constituency and an advocacy group for them, and we have invested in habitats for them. And not just the the birds that we hunt and shoot, but all their companions. Yeah. That's a great forward-looking story. Yeah. And uh, all of those type of things need to be looking forward. Yeah, that's we don't forget the lessons of the past. We don't forget where we came from. But if you weren't familiar with this or you felt that either by intention or just by circumstance you were kind of excluded from this activity, you don't really care about that story of the past. You care about how how am I involved in it? Where what's my role in it? Where where do I fit into this? So, you know, Tony made it pretty clear that we go and embrace this idea of new people, of different people. And that's not popular right now. Within the hunting space right now, there's a lot of, no, this is mine. I don't want any of you new people. I don't want any of you folks who talk different or, you know, come from a different background. This is mine. This is, this. you know, it's already too damn crowded here. I ain't buying that. And I'll fight that to the end of the day. If anyone thinks that grab my little scarce resource and I hoard it for myself is the path forward for the, the pastimes and the, and the tradition and the institutions that we've, we love and we've worked so hard for, I'm here to tell you you're wrong. And we read it, it, it is like the popular thing right now. Blame everything on the new hunter. Well, I'm here to tell you, that comes from a point of privilege that is bullshit. 
Just because you were born into hunting, like I was, just because you've had the good luxury of living in some place where there's a lot of accessible hunting and accessible whatever, doesn't mean the other person shouldn't have an opportunity. And if we have to have a debate over which direction we're going to go with that, I know what side of that debate I'm going to be on. Because I'm that confident that the other path of having this scarcity mindset that, oh, there's only so much and I'm going to hoard it for myself. I got to fight for what's mine. That scarcity mindset is it's defeatist from the start. It has a terminal end to it. And so what Tony points out, we're going to have to sort some of this out amongst us uh, within our community. Because this BS that we are hearing that everything's the fault of the new hunter, I'm here to tell you, if that's what you're professing, you have privilege beyond privilege, and you just can't see it. And you're playing right into the hands of those who would take it all away. Yes. So I I get it. I understand. I feel the same response at times if I pull up to a trailhead and there's five people there when there only used to be two. But... To say that's the problem and identify it as the solution is to exclude people, I ain't going there. I, uh, I, I, you can count me as a stick in the mud, as a you know, a, a contrarian, whatever. I am not going there. If you want to hunt, if you want to fish, if you want to be an advocate for public land, public places, wild things, you're welcome in my camp. And I don't care if you come from the Bronx or you come from El Paso. If you are whatever background you come from, you're in my camp, and I'm going to say, you want a beer? Even though I don't drink. <laughs> but it just, that, that, it's uh, those kind of things that we're not going to solve our problems. This bigger problem, you know, we talked about in the first episode, I said our house is burning down, and some people want to go worry about the dandelions in the front yard. That's an example of what I'm talking about. You hit on you hit on it to me. There are two ways of looking at the world. It is uh, there's not enough to go around, and I'm going to keep my piece of the pie, and I'm going to protect it. Yep. The other is let's make a bigger pie. Yep. An abundance thinker, right? An abundance thinker says, "Let's make a bigger pie. Let's let's create more access. Let's put more elk in the mountains. Let's put more fish in the streams. More ducks in the sky. More wildlife to watch." That's abundance thinking. It's always proven that abundance thinking prevails over scarcity thinking. And this scarcity BS, as much traction as as it's grabbing at times, is not the path forward. Or if it is, if someone strongly believes that, tell me how that's the path forward and where that leads us in 20 years. It leads us all talking about the good old days. Right. Wait, let's That's just right. let's just cue up the the uh, Bruce Springsteen song "Glory Days" because that's what it's going to be. We're all going to go into the bar and talk about how we used to throw the high fastball. That's what it's going to be under that scarcity thinking mindset. I ain't going there. No, nope, and I, I'm, I'm I'm asking all of you, don't go there. Think about this. If if you really are concerned about this long term future as we are, we have to make decisions of, (laughs) if we're going to stay relevant, 
in a society that is rapidly changing, the same people telling the same stories, using the same mechanisms, isn't going to work after a while. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. Leaded gas doesn't run real good in, in cars these days. Why? Because things changed. The world's changing. If we can't change, well, we're going to be like leaded gas and buggy whips. So what's the, what's the action point there? Be open-minded about it. And like Tony said, you know what? The, get someone else involved. Include someone else. And I know that some people are just going to be like, no way, man. I ain't doing it. Okay, fine. I get it if you don't. But I am. Yep. So. Whew, got that up. <laughs> yes, Andrew. <laughs> Andrew's, uh, Andrew's on that. I can see Andrew over there. We're, we got a video feed. And over the last 10 minutes, he's just been kind of like, his eyes have been getting bigger and bigger. And he's like, man, I don't know if I dare say anything right now. Well, yeah, that's because Randy is coming into my room. He's like getting bigger and bigger in the, in the computer screen. I'm having to back away a little bit because I think there might be some spit. no but i think the the takeaway of all that from tony's point is the demographic of america is changing our relevance is dependent upon how well we can be understood and appreciated by that changing demographic i'm gonna go on a dangerous Uh tangent this is the place he told me before the podcast. <laughs> I, I won't go here, Randy, but now I can see I've queued Andrew up with courage. Like, all right, I'm, I'm going to uh, break the glass here. I'm feeling a little rain on one side of my neck. I'm turning down this little brushy trail. <laughs> <laughs> and here's where it's dangerous because I, I've really been, uh, you've, you've picked up on this a little bit. I don't feel like it does us uh, a lot of good to demonize the other side. Mm-mm. And I just think it's useful to to just be mindful of that, that we can actually prevail by being just better people and better citizens and being more open to change and ideas and diversity. And as I think about our community, that's really what we've, what we've, when we are at our best, that is what we have done in, mm-hmm. in moments of sort of inflection, uh, when we had to come together to create public policies around funding wildlife management in America. When we had to come to what is about uh, the public trust, it's all about a bigger pie. It's about sharing mm-hmm. out of an abundance. And I think we just need to be, we need to keep that in mind and use that as a point of great differentiation between us and our adversaries. Right. And you know, the term I used in the first podcast that I know I'm <laughs> going to get lit up for is urban progressive privilege. Uh, just because they operate that way. You know, it's because someone else who disagrees with us views that their universe is the only universe and all the rest of you, if you don't like it, get off the planet, man. The, 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 the axis of the planet rotates around me. That doesn't mean we have to operate that way. If anything, we'll have more success by operating differently and showing the contrast between that mindset and our abundance thinking that we're going to build a bigger pie. We're going to include more people. We're going to have it better tomorrow than it was today because today was better than yesterday. And uh, so. but here's the punchline. Mm-hmm. I think we need to let them into our world. 
I don't yeah. think I, I, you know, to me, I, as part of this sort of mindset of inclusion, Hey, come along. Yeah. Voice your opinion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, we're not going to change it, but look at this bountiful world that is possible because of an alternative to your view. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be a totalitarian and shut people out or sell, or censor them by any means. Come mm-hmm. along. Participate as you can, but note that the world is going to leave you behind. Yeah. And I, I think we've, if we look at where we've had our successes in the conservation space, in the wildlife space, in the hunting, fishing space, it's when we were that way. When we just had confidence in our own views, our own ideas, our own institutions. We didn't view differing opinions as a threat. You know, just because someone feels a certain way, it doesn't make them wrong. It just, that's their life experiences have led them to that point. And if we're confident enough about the way that we see the world and uh, what has got us here and what's built this bounty of wildlife, we shouldn't operate in a fearsome loathing, like, oh no, how do we, we, we can't let that, we, we can't talk to them. No, if, if we're that confident, bring it on. Let, let's, let's share, let's show, let's, let's talk. There's actually a great model for that. I know you're uh, probably more intimately familiar with them than I am, but the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation or the, 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 the Sportsman's Caucus on yep. Capitol Hill is actually a really interesting model because you've yeah. got hardcore urban Democrats and hardcore yeah. rural Republicans who actually get a lot of work done by sharing a common vision of crafting sustainable public policy around wildlife in America. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it is fascinating to see them at work. They don't always agree. In fact, Often they don't agree, and they certainly don't agree on issues outside of the sphere of this particular collective. But what they do have in common is is an obligation to be constructionists, not yeah. not oppositionists or destructionists, yeah. right? Yeah. And and I think that uh, I think if if listeners are not familiar with them, go. Do yourself a favor, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. They yep. they do remarkable work of bridging ideological gaps and 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 getting a lot of good work done around common interests. And I think that's a good model for states and and communities to to be aware of. Yeah. So I'm I'm trying to think of more calls to action or more things people can do without people saying, Mr. Newberg or Mr. Newberg, can I go to the bathroom? I, I've had enough civics for today. Uh, and I, I struggle with that. I, that that's, you know, in today's society, the last thing people want to be told is, hey, you got to do this or you got to do that. You know? Right. right. <laughs> but if we're going to change or we're going to keep our leadership position, we have to be leaders. You know, leadership is not something that is just handed to you and you get it for the rest of your life. If you want to be a leader in this, if you want to have something for your family, your friends, your kids, whatever it is, you have to lead. And leadership requires sometimes saying some things that maybe get you in a little bit of trouble. Maybe get you a phone call from one of your friends. He says, you know, I didn't really like that. I get that. You know, 
And uh, sometimes leadership is also swallowing your pride and and admitting that you know maybe I can do this better. Maybe I, maybe I maybe there's a better way to do this. Uh, but my point of all this is, in, in saying that is, if we're just going to expend our energy in emotion, that's not leadership. Some people think noise constitutes leadership. Some of the best leaders in the world don't say a whole lot, but they get a lot done. And so wherever you are, whatever your community of people is that you're involved with, be thinking about these things. Be talking about it. Be be active in the places that policy is made, at your commission levels, at your legislative levels. Don't be afraid to come forth with your own ideas to your commission. Whether they're elected people, whether they're appointed people, and join organizations. The days of thinking that just buying your hunting license is your contribution towards the future. No, that 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 is <laughs> that's a mandatory requirement. That's not a contribution. Right. And uh, we need more people with their shoulder to the wheel. I guess that's my plea is in whatever way you can be involved, be engaged, look at what those people in Washington are doing. I just pulled up their Instagram page and they just started this Instagram page in the last six or nine months, probably conservation coalition of Washington. They, they only have a little over a thousand followers, but you know, the old, what was it? The movie, the 300, you know, 300 Spartans can do a hell of a lot of good. And these folks in Washington who are running that, they might not be the biggest group, but they're very effective. And the groups in Washington have come together. And maybe the, the you know, it's the steelheaders and maybe it's the bow hunters and maybe it's whatever group. I don't even know who all makes it up. But they've all said, you know what? We're here because the core of what we believe in, the institutions that allow us to do this are at risk and at stake. And, uh, you know, some of the things that those folks are putting together, the campaigns, the strategy, yeah. that's going to be effective stuff. This isn't just getting out on social media and screaming and ranting and yelling. This is saying, all right, step by step, here's what we got to do. We have very talented people within our community who can pull this off. And I'm glad to see him doing it in Washington. And uh, I think the same response is going to happen in in Colorado. And I think those two, watching those two models unfold, I don't care what state you live in, you should be paying attention to what's going on in Washington and Colorado, not just the issue, but the response that's coming from our communities. Because there are people that are busting their hump donating, volunteering, giving all their time, and they are making a difference. And that's that's what's going to carry the day. I don't care where these things unfold. That's what's going to carry the day. And I, I am sitting here with a big smile on my face watching the response that is happening in those two states. And, you know, wherever I can, I'd lend my platforms to them. Uh, but they're going to they're gonna prevail. I'm confident they're going to prevail. I have two sort of concluding thoughts. One is I am, I'm some ways I'm very happy this is happening to us because I think we as a a community have needed an existential threat. Yep. If you look at the history of, of 
success and conflict, it is a real threat that brings people together around a common idea and creates the escape velocity to move to the next stage. If that next stage is a national organization of hunters and anglers, great. If it's getting more involved in your local community and your state, great. So I think, I think this is a healthy thing for us, for our community. Mm-hmm. And the second observation is some listeners saying, I, don't, I just don't quite know how to get involved. I, I won't make any difference. You know, one of the things that I talked about, talk about in our hunter education classes, and it's, a, it's an old statement, is the measure of a hunter is what you do when nobody is listening and nobody yep. is watching. Yep. That code of personal ethics. I would extrapolate that or build on that to say everybody is watching. And what yep. we do matters because it's not that nobody is watching. Everybody is watching us. And I just think yep. being restrained, being respectful, being um, generous are all things that are really they have a gravitational pull. They're appealing. And I think those are all qualities that we need to just embrace and personify. Yeah, I, I think that's, and that's a person by person thing. Every one of us can do that. And if there's 10, 12 million of us that do that, uh, <laughs> pretty hard to enlist a greater army of, of advocates operating in that way. I, I know how you'd replicate that. And I, I think that's a point well taken we we all can play that role and and i hope we do but so what else we got here andy we, we got some, some a few more things on the list uh, we do. i don't know if any of them are off limits um but i i think one of the things we're going to have to be comfortable talking about as we go forward is the North American model that has certain tenants. We're going to have to look at some of that and say, where is it working? Mm-hmm. And where is it being used against us or is it hindering us? And I'm not afraid to have that conversation. I can't say that I have any points right now that, oh, we got to get rid of this. I, I, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying every institution, every, every tradition, every every way of life that prospers does its own self-examination yeah and corrects as necessary and remember i was saying i think one of the weak spots of our opposition is their blind dogma is there just is there very single-minded focus on things and i think i would encourage us not to be in that same boat and the north american model has become sort of this this thing of biblical proportions that cannot, it's like it's, it has actually become dogmatic. Yep. And I'm, I'm excited that there's a lot of energy right now in our community around revisiting it and where, and doing exactly what you suggest. Where does it work? Where does it not work? How could it be improved? And there are some little ways and there are some big ways, but that conversation is, is going on. And the thing I like about it is it's, it, it takes it from being this museum piece under glass to being a living, breathing, adaptable sort of just guide post for us um, that we can borrow from as we need to. Um, But it does give us a a trail to follow. Yeah. 
I, I, I would agree with that. And uh, I'm open for that discussion. The other thing I would like to bring up is um, I want to quote from this 2016 white paper. We've alluded to it a little bit, and that is, um, it's actually called Governance Principles for Wildlife Conservation in the 21st Century, which, boy, what else have we been talking about <laughs> for the last four episodes? But yeah. the thing I like about it is, it. oh, they're pretty, they're kind of dreamy, and they may be a little bit like, you know, granola or whole grain bread, you know, they're just, take this, it's good for you. But I think there's enough filler in there and maybe some refined sugar to make it go down. Okay. <laughs> but I'm gonna, they have these, the, the authors of this, and there are some real giants of the conservation community who put this together. Yep. Where I think if, if all of these were followed, we wouldn't have a problem. Nope. This is probably not accounting for the political winds of change, but I'm going to read a few of them and I'll, I'll make them short. But number one, commissioners must be adaptable and responsible to the current needs and interests of citizens, wildlife and fisheries, while also preparing for future needs. Well, who's going to disagree with that? Right. Number two, commissioners should seek and incorporate multiple and diverse perspectives. Mm-hmm. Now, while I'm reading these, I want, I want listeners to think about your wildlife commissioner. Everybody... Every citizen of every state in America has a wildlife commissioner. We mm-hmm. said before, if you don't know them, find who out who they are. And then find out if they're adhering to this. Number three, I, this is probably my favorite one. Commissioners should be intellectually curious, incorporate social and ecological citizen or science, citizens' knowledge and professional judgment in decision making. And then it goes on. Yeah. Intellectually curious. What's the last time that you saw a public a, a politician, a politician who was intellectually curious. Boy, I, it's been so long ago. I, I, I didn't even. I don't even know if I knew what the term "intellectual curious" was back when. Maybe I saw a person like that. I mean, that that is part of the. I think, you know, I said we need a training manual for these folks or a training course for these folks. Is what I said in one of these episodes. And uh, I don't know how you train intellectual curiosity. I, I don't either. And in some ways it probably dis, disqualifies them from, you know, being political animals to begin with, but right. it's, 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 it's kind of useful. Yeah. And the other one I would just say is, is accountability that, that commissioners and the process by which they're appointed must be publicly accessible and transparent. And I think in Washington, that's the one I've seen has had the biggest violation. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, seeing it now in kind of in Colorado, also yeah. with the new commission appointments. But but the thing I like about that is there actually are standards. And if they were only adhered to, I think we would, we'd still have some rough patches, but we wouldn't have quite this level of angst yeah. around this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with all of that. And, uh, you know, there, here's the other part. A lot of people are thinking that this is a new issue, that this just popped up. There are folks within our agencies, the in the, the association of agencies, which is the AFWA Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. They have groups that have been looking at this and working on this. We have professors, attorneys who have written papers on what should be the expected training background, whatever you want to call it, expectations placed on a wildlife trustee. So there's a lot of stuff out there. What is good governance? It's already 
been written and, and put out there and you're quoting from some of it. So, uh, I, I think we, we, we as a community got to start forcing and we keep, why do we keep looping back to governance? <laughs> <laughs> we have to force good governance and people that that's kind of like a, a nebulous term. So what is good governance? It's accountability. It's transparency. It's following the rules. It's a lot of things. It's not just, hey, raising your hand and saying, yeah, I like good governance. Well, everyone likes good governance. But is that what's happening? And uh, how, do we, how do we demand that? And how do we hold people accountable to it when it's not happening? Uh, we do that at the ballot box or we do it through litigation or we do it by just showing up and being a big enough pain in the butt that... <laughs> You know, if you're an elected or appointed person, the last thing you want is some highly motivated, well-informed people showing up because your day is going to be long. Your month might be long. And if you are well-informed, you're professional and you're highly motivated, you have the ability to be that point of resistance. You know, I I think a lot of this, and I've heard someone say that government is like water. Wherever it goes, it finds its path of least resistance. And those who get the get the flood are those who put up no resistance. Mm-hmm. So. I will say this: this is a perspective as for my brief tenure as a commissioner. So these are these are volunteers. These are people mm-hmm. who probably had no idea what's really required of them <laughs> in terms of probably. the homework, the immense yeah. amount of reading, the immense amount of solicitation that they're going to get from constituencies or special interests, asking them to consider their perspective. And so I actually think that what you just described, somebody who comes in who is informed, who has a perspective and who has maybe an ask at the end of that, is actually a welcome part of a commissioner's life because they in some ways can help make their that job a little more tolerable, bearable, and at the end of the day, meaningful. Yeah. Um, but I, I also don't want to forget that the people we thrust into these positions, a lot of times they're like deer in the headlights. They don't know what they just got themselves into. <laughs> and so they're extremely easy to manipulate. Yeah. Uh, so I would like to not only have an onboarding process where we sort of train an incoming commissioner, but as I mentioned before, I want to have... I want to be more thoughtful about the on-ramps. How Mm -hmm. do we groom future commissioners? Yeah, I think you touched on that. You know, a lot of states have what's called regional advisory committees or citizens advisory committees, county committees. I think those are great places for some of that. I know that you're going to have to run, Andrew, but I got to throw the last one out there. I don't know that we ever got across this, all the way across this bridge. but. Wildlife agencies and wildlife management cannot be, it's not a sustainable funding mechanism we're on right now. It creates imbalances between residents and non-residents. It creates imbalances all over the place. And it's even with those imbalances, we're still probably not addressing all of the challenges that are there. How are we going to handle that? And how are we going to get past the resistance of, boy, we don't want to let them have a seat at the table. 
All right. You asked for it. <laughs> okay. Here we go. So let me build a little house um, okay. from scratch because I think what I would propose that kind of addresses that also addresses what Tony was talking about, about broadening, opening the aperture of co- what it means to be uh, supporting conservation in America. Mm-hmm. So as Tony mentioned, right now in America, we do a damn good job of managing and sustaining huntable and fishable species of wildlife. Yep. We really don't have a funding problem. We do. There's, you know, there's, there's years when they're, they're, they're neglected and, and times when they're neglected and species that are neglected. But what we've really neglected is our obligation to all of the hundreds of other wildlife species that don't have a dedicated funding and that really are an afterthought. And the yep. only time we really think about them is when they get in such dire conditions that we, we put them on a, on a list <laughs> and then we invest huge amounts of money to bring them back. Right. Well, as an accountant, I, you appreciate it. It's way cheaper to keep them abundant instead of trying to manage them back to abundance once they're scarce. Yep. So I really do believe we need that dedicated funding that we've talked about, RAWA, the Reinvesting in America's Wildlife Act, or some variation on that, mm-hmm. that would help us I think live up to our obligations to all wildlife, not just the ones that we hunt for and fish for. Right. The house I would build would would be funded partly by that and partly by the other funding mechanisms. But there would be a seat at the table for people who do not hunt and do not fish and who represent that non-game, non-hunted or fished wildlife mm-hmm. constituency. I think it is really important that they have a role in the decision making. So yep. I, I really don't want to close the door behind us. I says, again, looking forward, I think, to managing out of abundance and having more diversity of viewpoint and representation in our, in our boards and commissions. I think it's, yeah. I think it's an, um, a necessary way forward. I, I agree. I, did you read my words on that or were those your words? <laughs> well, no. uh, sometimes I feel like we have this mind mail. There's a little like uh, lightning bolts that go between us. There must have been one. Uh, what you, what, what's your take? No, I, I, I would agree with that. I, I think that if we, you know, we already talked about, I think Tony said that 3% of the Nevada citizens pay for the management of 98% of the wildlife through fees to hunt 5% of the wildlife. That is so askew, so out of balance. It's not sustainable. We need other funding sources. And where they come from, how how we get them, whatever, I don't know that there's a one-size-fits-all. It's going to be state-dependent. It's going to be program-dependent. But uh, I get people, I, I sometimes fall into this trap myself of saying, well, if you aren't paying, you know what, hell with you. And then I find myself saying, well, I don't want them to pay because I might have to think differently, right? I get out of my comfort zone here, but that's not good. Just because I fall into that trap at times does not mean that's the path forward. I'd ask everybody, put yourself in the shoes of someone 40 years from now. Do you think that this model that we have and this path we're on is sustainable for an abundance of wild things and robust productive landscapes i don't yeah so. i i would 
so th- that funding mechanism, you know, RAWA is, is, is one of, of, of many. I would encourage anybody who's not done it, go to Missouri. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Missouri has a dedicated portion of a sales tax that's tiny. I guess one sixteenth of a penny or something crazy like that. But in aggregate, it adds up to millions of dollars. And what I would encourage you to do is look around in downtown St. Louis at the number of urban parks and fishing ponds there are, Mm -hmm. at the number of wildlife management areas that are spread across the state, at the quality of the infrastructure at boat ramps and parks. That is a place where they are living 40 years in the future, as near as I can tell it. They have great conservation education programs. They've got a really activist community that knows what they have to lose, and they're willing to get involved so that they don't lose it and build on it. I think we could have that in every state. No, I, I think some some method towards that. And for those who are, oh, I don't want any general money. I don't want general fund money. I don't want sales tax money, income tax money. Well, the one thing I always hear is my fees are too high. I don't want to pay anymore. So <laughs> you, you can't say you oppose X, which is more fees for you, and you also oppose Y and think you're going to have a a different outcome. So I'm I'm with you. We we have to look at those kind of things. And I don't know what they are. In Missouri, a sales tax work. In some other state, you know, I don't I don't know what it might be. Uh, but conservation, productive landscapes, clean air, clean water, more wildlife that we call conservation, it gets more expensive every year. That's right. We think it's expensive today. It's going to be way more expensive in five years. And if you think we're going to be doing this with a smaller base of people funding it, it is just not a model that is going to sustain. It will eventually collapse under its own weight. And if it collapses, the the corpus of the trust, the wildlife resource that all citizens benefit from, will will collapse with it. And I know that sounds like... A, you know, defeatist thing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that as a as a factual thing. I'm saying we can solve it. We've proven some state. Missouri is a great example. They've proven they can solve this. So let's get on with the business of solving it. So how do we wrap this up, Andrew? Well, I think you just did. Let's get on with the business of solving it. That's, uh, you know, I think there's two uh, takeaways. That that we need to be creative, you know, whether it's coal tax revenue or energy revenue, like there are funding mechanisms that we need to yep. demand are forward looking. Yep. That's the whole idea of conservation. Like we yes. need to put our money where our mouth is. And the second thing is I, I'm, I'm just so fond of your analogy of the tree and the branches. We have got to sustain the tree. Yeah. All right. But, and I hope we do that. I think giving people a, a way to look at that and envision that I hope is helpful. Uh, and I see that happening right now. I hear it doing all the talks within our organizations that are kind of the critter groups, if you want to say that, are like, all right, we're missing a piece here. And I think we're going to come through with that. Probably my wrap and, and my observation is this, is how it's through this process we've talked to a lot of people off the record you know two of them on the record i am just so impressed with how much passion people have for this 
how much it is a part of their life like it is of mine and it is of yours and of so many people listening. And it gives me so much optimism. Like when I talk to some of these guys in Washington or you and I were on a call with some some people in Colorado, they're going to get the job done. We're going to learn from those lessons. We're going to replicate the successes. And 10 years from now, I think to your point of we almost needed this kind of event to happen. I think 10 years from now, we're going to look back and this couple of year period here is going to be a pivot point yeah. where we changed our ways. We lifted our head up and looked more to the horizon. And once again, a challenge presented itself and we prevailed. That's, that is what's got me excited about all this. And yeah. uh, I'm excited to hopefully lend our platforms to a little bit of that, that solution. So. Well, thank you for being a leader and, and, and a good trail buddy. This has been a fun ride. Um, <laughs> it's been, it really has. It's been, I think I've yeah. learned a lot and I've, I'm inspired. Um, got a lump in my throat on some of it, but, uh, yeah. but thank you. No, thank you, Andrew. And, you know, I, I, you're going to crack up with this. I told my wife I was doing this final podcast with you and she's like, is that that guy who back in 1995 worked at that? fishing uh, Rocky Mountain hunting and fishing news place that you used to talk about because every time we drive through Glasgow I'm like yeah that Andrew McKean guy lives here <laughs> and uh, so you and I have been talking about these things for a long time I think the first time you ever called me was like in 1994 95 and you were working for that publication and then when yeah. you're at FWP and you you Andrew have been a steady hand a visionary a calm voice uh, and a thoughtful thinker in the, in this space that, that you operate in. And I know I echo that appreciation from everybody listening that if not for Andrew McKean and his role and the way he uses his role, hunting and conservation, angling, the, the place we're at today would not be nearly as bright. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it your time. And, and the next time I see you on the streets of Bozeman say, Hey, I got an idea. I want to run by you. <laughs> I'm going to run, run, I, I, run. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Folks who don't know, Andrew and his dog were in Bozeman <laughs> about a year ago and I caught him and we stood around his truck till midnight, kind of theorizing about what we saw coming. Little did we know it would evolve to what it has. And that was kind of where this started on Mendenhall Street standing around Andrew's truck and his dog had just your dog had just what got to in with a skunk or something that was smelling um, a little foul and <laughs> I was going to invite you to stay at my house that night but I'm like boy if I tell my wife we're bringing this this lab in that smells like a dead skunk I'm not sure I, I might get shown the door but, well uh, she hasn't gotten any better but uh, I'd like to think that we have <laughs> uh, anyhow thanks so much andrew i i think there's opportunity for you and i to weigh in on a lot of this stuff going forward and uh there's there's good things i think that are gonna gonna come uh in the hunting space a lot of people are paying attention and they're motivated and that's that's what's gonna make the big difference so well thanks for being a bright star to follow it's uh you make it easy well, thank you. Now, tomorrow morning, you go out and find those roosters that are tucked in <laughs> under those cattails and uh, shoot me a picture of it. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for being here, folks. Appreciate it. Hope this gives you a lot to think about. When the sun keeps shining.